0: Welcome to Reason for Hope. My name is Adrian. I'm your co-host this evening, and uh, thank you for joining us. In studio with me is Pastor Scott Richards. We're live streaming out of Tucson, Arizona, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, and also in studio with us is Pastor Sean Richards. Here we are. The brilliant Bible scholars that we have here for the program. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, we'd love to invite you to follow Pastor Scott on Twitter. Uh, his Twitter handle is Scott r 4 h And uh, if you have a question for the program, we do this program uh, every weekday, 5 to 6 p.m. where we take people's questions about the Bible. Uh, If you have a question about the Christian worldview or perhaps you're just curious as to whether there are good reasons for believing that God is real, that he revealed himself in humanity's history and whether or not uh, Jesus is a reflection of who that uh, person is and so on. So all kinds of questions we deal with here on the program. Um, If you have a passage you want to learn how to apply to your life, or you want insight in, uh, feel free to chime in. And uh, you can tweet that question on Pastor Scott's Twitter feed, and we'll tackle it there. Or you can join us on the live stream right on Facebook. Our handle on Facebook is at CCF Tucson. And just join us in the chat during the live stream, and we'll take those questions as one at a time as we get them. Of course, we invite you to... Uh, Be sincere about your questions. We don't necessarily want um, folks just kind of picking on us, but uh, we will take each question uh, as sincerely as possible. (laughs) And if you have a preference for watching on YouTube, we have a YouTube. We live stream simultaneously to there, too. And if you do follow us on these social media programs, we would really appreciate it if you would like, subscribe, share. And, of course, commenting with your questions is the key to how we handle this program. Our Twitter, I'm sorry, our YouTube handle is a reason for hope 546. <clears throat> we also live stream to our website and we will post uh, the videos to Rumble. We're not live streaming to Rumble just yet, but if you do prefer to uh, watch on Rumble, you can catch the program after the live stream. And of course, if you want to ask questions there, you'd have to do that on the other platforms, but you can follow us on Rumble. And uh, you can watch our live streams on our website as well. So if you'd prefer to avoid social media platforms and would prefer to just watch somewhere else, go to calvarychristianfellowship.com. Click the Watch Live tab on the navigation there, and you can not only watch this program and all of our services and special events that we live stream, but you can comment, you can ask questions, you can ask and make prayer requests as well. We also have a app, an app that you can download from the Apple or Google Play stores, and on this app you can follow along. Uh, it's got a nifty little Bible or digital Bible where you can make notes, highlights. You can join chat groups. You can make prayer requests. You can uh, stay tuned with all events that we're doing here at our church at uh, in Tucson, Arizona, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, and you can uh, also watch archived messages. So if you love to study God's Word and you want to uh, kind of understand how a specific passage is treated you can go into our archives and you can actually listen in on a sermon that, because we teach verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. So if you want to know what John three sixteen really means <laughs> and you want to hear Pastor Scott teach on that passage you can go to our archives right there on the Bible app and, and listen in and of course we have a way for you to watch our services on all Amazon products, so Amazon Fire and Roku products, you can add our channels to those platforms and watch our services, including this program there as well. And finally, if you'd like to ask your questions via email, kind of want to maybe be a little more discreet, and you can do that via email at questions for hope at gmail.com. That's questions for hope. All spelled out, no numbers at gmail.com. Well, gentlemen looking forward to today's program. We have a couple questions we didn't get to yesterday, so we'll tackle those first. But before we do that, let's take time to uh, pray and get started.
1: Yeah, let's do that. Father, I thank you for this opportunity to meet here in your presence. And Lord, we invite you to be the one that guides us into all truth. You said your Holy Spirit was sent to do just that. So Lord, uh, cause us to be edified during this time, having our knowledge view built up. Help us to be exhorted. Uh, For those that that wonder what it means to make the next step and be right in the middle of your will, I I pray that you would come alongside of them and exhort them and let them know not just what your word has to say, but why it's so important that they walk in your ways, that it is the path of blessing and peace and fulfillment for their lives. And Father, I would ask as well uh, that you would comfort those who might be really hurting out there with the understanding that you are the God who daily bears our burdens, uh, that you are the one that we can cast our cares upon, and you are the one who promised that you would never leave us nor forsake us. We stand on these promises, Lord, and we pray, Father, that that and a whole lot more would come forth on the program. Help us to be clear. Help us to be succinct. Help us to uh, truly uh, answer the questions that are on people's hearts as your Spirit gives us the power to do so. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: It's true. Amen. Thank you very much. Well, yesterday we had a question about Bible prophecy and specifically, the 70 weeks of Daniel. How do we uh, arrive at these numbers? Is, is the, the questioner kind of put it in the, in the frame of, is, are you performing mathematical gymnastics with the Bible? Is, are you really reading into the Bible, into the text, and inventing these ideas? Or is this something that's clear? So, Pastor Scott, Pastor Sean, how do we understand the 70 weeks of Daniel?
1: Well, I don't think uh, there's any need to do any kind of mathematical gymnastics to understand what's going on in Daniel chapter 9, I think the easiest way uh, to understand any passage of Scripture is to not read into Scripture, but rather read out of the Scripture. And when we take a look at any passage of Scripture, including a prophetic passage, its literal, grammatical, and historical context, allowing the GPS headings, if you will, that we find within the Word of God to give us guidance and direction Uh, rather than uh, speculation and smoke and mirrors and uh, debates and uh, dissensions. We can find with clarity what God's intended meaning was for a particular passage. Daniel chapter 9, the context of it all was uh, Daniel was praying uh, as he had uh, done the math and was discovering that the 70 years that Jeremiah had predicted, uh, of exile for the people of Israel in Babylon uh, the people of Israel had embraced uh, Idolatry and so for 70 years they would be in idol central if you will they'd have idols coming out of their nose and uh, Apparently this was a uh, an amazingly effective cure because although the people of Israel had other spiritual problems afterwards They never again fell into idolatry uh, The reason for the 70 years was because uh, Israel had blown off a very important part of Of their covenant their agreement that they had made with God and they said that we will keep all these laws one of those agreements was keeping the sabbatical year that is that every seven years the land would lay fallow and not be sown or harvested God would uh, the previous year give them more than enough to get by so that this would not be a problem for them but it was really a way of working without a net for the people of Israel they had to trust God uh, for their very livelihoods. Well, uh, as we take a look at uh, the records of how the people of Israel behaved when they got to the Promised Land, not once did they keep that sabbatical year. And so, at the end of the Book of Second Chronicles, when it talks about uh, the conquest of uh, jerusalem the final exile of the people uh, the remaining two tribes of israel into babylonian captivity it says that then the land enjoyed its sabbaths in other words there would be 70 years and it was kind of the uh, god's way of saying uh, you can pay me now or pay me later but this was our agreement uh, you didn't keep it but i'm going to keep it for you uh, and, and so that was the reason for the 70 years there now, really interesting, uh, building off of this 70-year time frame, and Daniel took this very literally, he didn't see this as some kind of a figure thing, well, seven's the number of perfection, so I imagine if we have, uh, you know, this is uh, just some, it's not, you know, he said, no, this is very specific, and that's why he was seeking the Lord with fasting and with prayer. And in verse 20 of Daniel chapter 9, we were told, Now as I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, and that is referring to Jerusalem, yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, was being caused to fly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. And he informed me and talked with me and saying, O oh Daniel, I've now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplication, the command went out, and I've come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Boy, wouldn't that be a wonderful thing to hear from an angel in heaven, that you're greatly beloved by God, one of his special ones. Uh, therefore, consider uh, the matter and understand the vision. In verse 24, we read this, 70 weeks, literally 70 shabuas or 77s, are determined for your people and for your holy city. To finish the transgression... To make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Now, one of the first things we need to understand about this is that this has nothing to do with the uh, exile of the people of Israel. This has everything to do with how God was going to deal with the people of Israel post exile, once they had been brought back to the land, God was emphasizing that he did have a purpose, that he did have a plan for the people of Israel. And he details that in 77s, literally 70 weeks of years, Shavuaz in Hebrew, uh, there was going to be uh, God, in essence, fulfilling every good promise that he made to the Jewish people uh, and for their holy city, Jerusalem, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy. In other words, to fulfill every promise, every prediction God had made, and to anoint the most holy. Now, uh, the term most holy here doesn't mean so much the idea of anointing the most holy place, that is a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, as much as a reference to Messiah himself, the anointed one was going to come on the scene. And, and this becomes more specific. So we see that God was going to fulfill these various tasks, these things that were still loose ends, if you will, of God's dealings with the Jewish people. And then Gabriel goes on to explain how the, this 70 Uh, times seven uh, weeks of years, if you will, 490 years, if you want to put it together, of prophetic involvement with the people of God was going to go down. Uh, He says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Mashiach Nagid. Uh, This is the only time, by the way, the term Messiah specifically is used in the Old Testament to describe Jesus. Mashiach Nagid. There shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. In other words, there was going to be uh, 483 years from the time of a command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah himself came on the scene. The street will be built again and the wall, even in troublous times. So uh, basically we could ask ourselves a question, okay, when did the decree go forth to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Well, we know when that happened. In Nehemiah chapter 1, we see uh, a Persian king by the name of uh, Artaxerxes Longimanus, uh the one that uh, Nehemiah was the cupbearer, who gives Nehemiah the wherewithal to be able to go and rebuild the city of Jerusalem. We know when this happened. It happened in the month of Nisan. And uh, when we do our homework, 445 uh, B.C., Uh, when we do our homework, we go forth in time, 483 Jewish years. Now, by Jewish years, we mean 360-day Jewish years. They operate on the lunar calendar, not on the solar calendar that we are a part of. 175,580 days from this command. Messiah the Prince would come on the scene. Now that is a remarkable prophecy because if you do the homework on this, and you can uh, read a couple of books that have been written along this line. One is The Coming Prince that uh, that deals with this. The other is Harold Honer's excellent book, Chronological Aspects of the Life of Jesus. Boy, sounds like a real page turner. But if you want to explore this prophecy in depth, I highly recommend Dr. Honer's work. He has really done his homework along this line, uh, archaeologically, Uh, culturally, uh, showing uh, the mathematics involved with all of this, even the insertion of uh, the the go-ahead year, uh, the balancing year that would be a part of the Jewish calendar that would keep things synchronized even with Uh, Their uh,
2: their lunar calendar versus the solar calendar and uh, just as a quick side note There are obviously going to be people who say well, there's these two positions as to what the date is that Controversy entirely stands or falls not on the handling of the scripture, but the material the references you use Archaeologically and outside of the Bible to figure out when Artaxerxes Longinus gave that order. We are going by, your numbers in this, are going off of the Naboninus Chronicle. There are right. other sources that would date it around maybe five or six years around, but the as far as ancient history is concerned, a gap of less than a decade for something that far long ago is unheard of. So when we're working with this material, we're not fudging the data. We're being consistent with the material that we have. Other materials out there can stand or fall on its own merit, but note where it brings us. Okay, and uh, the Nabonidus Chronicle, can you explain that real quickly for our audience? Uh, Nabonidus was the successor to Nebuchadnezzar, the predecessor of King Belshazzar, who was co-regent at the end of Babylon. Obviously, he didn't have a chance to write the kings that succeeded him because he was dead then, but the essentially plaque that recorded all of his conquest his interactions with the kings of right. Persia and then those who succeeded him made careful note of the people he stewarded and how they were handed off to the uh, Persians and the Medes when he uh, its kingdom basically came to an end yeah and,
1: and so from this and the dating of tell oh, uh, that's what uh, I was looking for of uh, the book of Nehemiah and we can come down with uh, such a uh, precise date. Uh, that it's uh, absolutely stunning. Verse 26 of Daniel chapter 9 says, and after the 62 weeks, now remember there's been seven weeks and 62 weeks, so after the 483 years that have gone on, Messiah shall be cut off. The word there in Hebrew carries the idea of suffering a violent death. Now that has to be pretty shocking for the average sensibility of a Jewish person who believe that Messiah would be the Davidic king who would make Israel number one, rout the enemies of of Israel and God, and reign forevermore. But we see that there is an interim that has to happen there. Messiah the prince shall be cut off, but not for himself. And, uh, (laughs) you know, it's it's, uh, really significant for us to be able to see that, uh, that uh, when uh, Messiah the prince was cut off, it wasn't for himself. In other words, we see a picture of the substitutionary atonement of Jesus being strongly intimated in this particular passage. He shall not be cut off himself, and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood. Until the end of the war, desolations are determined. Now notice, here we see another shift in the prophecy. Messiah the prince has come. He has been cut off. He has suffered a violent death. Then we are told that the people of the prince who is to come, in other words, this other prince that we see is going to dominate the rest of the prophecy, the people of this prince, the Romans, were going to come in and destroy Jerusalem after Messiah the prince has been cut off. And this is really a stunning thing when you stop and think about it, because uh, even if you talk to someone who is Jewish, who doesn't accept Jesus, as the Messiah, very challenging question to ask if they accept the book of Daniel as being uh, authentic and prophetic, and many do, uh, is this. Was there ever a serious candidate uh, that arose that was not only considered to be the Messiah, but also suffered a violent death as a result of being considered the Messiah? bar Kokhba. Uh, no, no, he didn't. No, no. And he came about hundred years later. So anyway, uh, the, the, the bottom line is this. Uh, we see that Messiah, the prince, is cut off. Then the city and the sanctuary shall be destroyed, we are told. The end of it shall will be with a flood, a picture of just overwhelming force that would end up destroying Jerusalem until the end of the war desolations are determined. So here we see, coming into this prophecy, 483 years have been accomplished. Then we see a couple of key words here, uh, and till the end, literally the end, desolations are determined. In other words, there's going to be a leap here, from the time Messiah the Prince is cut off, the people the Prince who, who is to come are going to come in and destroy Jerusalem. That did not happen. Uh, you know, bang bang. After Jesus' death, uh, there was a uh, basically a 40-year lull if you will, until finally under Titus and his legions, Jerusalem was destroyed. And then we were told, till the end of the war, desolations are determined. So we've got an indeterminate period of time between 483 years in this prophecy and the final seven years. Well, the question would come up, what's going to happen in that final seven-year period of time? Then, now notice we've got a till and a then. So there is an indeterminate period of time where Israel was going to be basically desolate. And uh, again, we can take a look at prophecies like, say, Ezekiel 35 all the way through 39 about the restoration of the land that was going to come on physically, the people being brought back to the land, how uh, there would be a spiritual renewal, the people of God would defend the people and so on. But this would happen after Israel had been out of the land and the land had been desolate for a long, long period of time. We see repeated prophecies about that. And that's uh, what we see in this one, so at the end of this indeterminate period of time, then he who, the prince who is to come, shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offerings, and on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out, On the desolate. Now, notice something about this. Some people say, well, why couldn't this be Jesus and why couldn't this be uh, the uh, new covenant, if you will? Well, this is not a covenant that's kept, it's a covenant that's broken. Hmm. It is not a covenant that restores, it's a covenant that leaves people desolate.
0: So, this is a different prince.
1: (laughs) Right. So, the prince who is to come, that is why we take the the position, and I don't really see any way around it, that we are dealing with the Antichrist, whose career is going to be dealt with in some detail later on in the prophecies of the book of Daniel. And, and so when people look at this and, uh, you know, they might hear different people saying, well, no, I think this, or, you know, this is where I think it began, or this is where, you know, the, the thing I would say to people uh, is, uh, if you've got such a powerful picture of the precision of God's plan for his people, and by the way, those who try to late date Daniel and say it was written after the fact because it is so specific, they don't just have a problem with this prophecy. Boy, from then on, uh, Daniel 11 and 12 are so, is so specific about all of the events and all the different powers that would rise and even the personalities that would rise that would directly affect Israel leading up to the time of Christ and so on. Mm. Uh, there are people who try to late date it and say, well, you know, Daniel had to be writing. Uh, th- this is just they use Daniel, but this is somebody writing clearly after the fact uh, because it does talk about the rise of the Maccabees. It does talk uh, about them uh, reclaiming the temple and and so on. And and so they try to lay data. The only problem that uh, we run into there is that the, the whole deal with the rise of the Maccabees and the revolt against a Greek ruler, Antiochus Epiphanes, who put a statue of Zeus up in the temple and wanted to exterminate uh, the idea of Jewish worship and replace it with uh, Greek paganism. The only problem with that is that happened roughly, well, around 165 B.C. We have a copy of the book of Daniel from the Dead Sea Scrolls that dates mm. to 200 B.C. I was just BC. about to ask you, doesn't the Dead Sea so, Scrolls
0: put all this to rest? So, <laughs> yeah. No,
1: well, you would think it does, but there's a lot of hand-waving that goes on. It, it's almost <laughs> like people who say, well, Moses couldn't have written the first five books of the Bible because written language didn't exist at that time. Well, then they discovered uh, a place called Ebla in uh, Syria, Tel Mardik. Uh, Ebla was a huge commercial city. They discovered a huge library in Ebla, which, by the way, uh, contained commercial transactions and things like this that specifically mentioned people like the Hittites, uh, cities like Sodom and Gomorrah as actual places, Mm -hmm. and had incredibly sophisticated and well-developed writing that predated Moses by over a thousand years. Mm-hmm.
2: So keep those CVS receipts, historians yeah. <laughs> may need them. Yeah. So uh,
1: the, the bottom line is people will try to do all kinds of hand waving and don't pay any attention to this. But the, the, the bottom line is if we take a look at the scripture and we allow scripture to interpret scripture, we ask ourselves the question, okay, who is writing these words? What was the prophet Daniel? why was Daniel writing these words to record an angelic interaction that happened when he as uh, if you will the under shepherd over Israel during their Babylonian and their Persian uh, captivity Mm. uh, for a time anyway was saying okay 70 years is up now what's going to happen well God didn't want his people left in the dark there were going to be a number of things and the most important thing I think that we discover in all of this is that God wasn't finished with the Jewish people, that he still had and still has mm. a plan for the restoration of the Jewish people, including that final seven-year period of time where the Jewish people will make a strong covenant with this individual called the Antichrist.
2: That other prophets also mention, they'll make a covenant with death.
1: Yeah, uh, in Isaiah, we, we see this covenant of death mentioned very strongly in all of this. Uh, at the halfway mark, uh, we are told that uh, the abomination that causes desolation. Jesus said it was important for us to understand where that was. Second Thessalonians chapter two gives us specifically what that's going to be when the antichrist goes into a rebuilt temple, declares himself God to be worshipped, mm-hmm. and declares that anyone who doesn't worship him is uh, going to be exterminated
0: there has to be sacrifices going on in order, in order for him to put an end to sacrifice
1: right and you've got to have a temple in order for sacrifice mm-hmm. to happen yeah. so you know yeah. some people get all hot and bothered and say oh but sacrifice is over and you're blaspheming because you're rebuilding the temple no we're not rebuilding yeah. the temple
0: not for, maybe for christians but not for jesus the Antichrist
1: <laughs> is rebuilding the temple and we also see in the book of ezekiel that there is going to be a temple standing during the thousand year reign of christ mm-hmm. where sacrifices are going to be offered not to take away sins but much like us celebrating communion they're mm-hmm. going to be commemorative and exploratory of what jesus did when he took away our sins which because, I consider an upgrade. Because, well, let's face it, God oh, doesn't let a single partake. one of his promises <laughs> fall to the ground. He, he doesn't say, oh, well, I forgot about that mm. one. Every good and perfect promise he has made to the people of Israel, he's going to fulfill. And a lot of people that, are, quite frankly, are anti-Semitic, uh, and that, that always boggles my mind, people who buy into all these uh, controversy theories and, uh, you know, the Jewish cabals and things like this, and, oh, you know, they're the, they're the servants of, uh, you know, the, the spawn of Satan and, and so on. Uh, it, you know, if you take that point of view, which I think is satanically inspired, by the way, um, you know, you're going to try to, you know, explain away the, the idea mm-hmm. that uh, someday all Israel is going to be saved, uh, that once the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, God will again deal with the Jewish people.
0: It's the reason why Paul calls it a partial hardening.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, you know, there, there are some who will complain uh, about the idea, oh, well, this just seems very complicated. Uh, I guess to quote C.S. Lewis, if you're not ready for books written for adults, don't read them. There are some prophecies that will, you know, again, like I mentioned, uh, uh, The Coming Prince and uh, Dr. Harold Honer's chronological aspects of the life of Christ, uh, you know, if you want to dig into all of this, boy, I'd encourage you to do so because it will strengthen your faith, mm. but it will also stretch your intellect a bit. Mm. You know I think it was Teddy Roosevelt who uh, once said that reading the Bible is an education in, a, in mm. itself. and uh, it's not something that causes us to turn off our minds or check our brains at the door. It's something that causes us to fully uh, engage the intellectual capacity that God has given to us in order to understand the things that God, has has provided in his word. I appreciate Anything what you said to
0: that? about the idea of scripture interpreting scripture. I mean, I think that's really helpful for most of us who maybe struggle with some kind, sometimes with different passages. Where if you kind of stand back and, and study the Bible as a whole, rather than meal, uh, You're not reading into the text, you're actually just getting from the text what it's trying to communicate. It's, Huge. Yeah. it's a big plan, a big picture, starting from the very beginning to the very end. That's this crimson thread yeah. going through a plan for the Messiah Prince to save humanity through the nation of Israel, which God made multiple promises to and is not done with yet.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Are you going to add anything to that? Yeah, and understand as well, you mention it often, that there's no section of Scripture that can't be understood without a working knowledge of the original languages. While terms like Shabuwa, things like Mashiach, things like Prince and knowing the significance and distinctions between the two being presented in the original language saying that that would leave you behind or pass you by if you didn't uh, have a conversant understanding of Hebrew nothing can be further from the truth because the next three chapters of Daniel are very meaty looks ahead At God's purposes for mankind, and as they're spelled out, obviously the intent isn't for you to stop at chapter 12. He finishes the book and the account by noting these things are things that are for the time of the end. But you go your way, Daniel. You shall rest with your fathers. People go to and fro. Knowledge will increase. This will become clear in time. Mm. You are simply to write this down. I am reading that and taking all the information about the cruel king of the north's excursions into Africa and uh, ultimately being cut off by Messiah when he comes back to Jerusalem and all these other things. I might pick up some details as I continue through the prophets, Zechariah Zach- in parallel to the book of Daniel, as phenomenal as far as getting kind of in on the joke, so to speak. But once you get through the gospel accounts and note Jesus' triumphal entry, where he says, you did not know the day of your visitation. Why is he drawing so much attention to that? Daniel should come to mind. Mm -hmm. So when we read the Bible as a unit, it takes care of the language gap. But if you're willing to do a little bit of homework, and again, excellent resources and books have been recommended, even a cursory look at Bible Hub in the uh, lexicons and the interlinears there to show you the significance of these languages and commentaries of people that you have reason to trust. These are all fantastic. But when it comes to, you know, it's complicated, therefore it's untrue. People dismiss the Trinity on that basis. People dismiss salvation on that basis. People dismiss my existence on that basis. It doesn't mean it's a rational conclusion. If it's above where you're at personally with God and you wanna fall back on more comfortable ground, i won't push you but if you want to understand things that god said on purpose that alone should be motivation to dig a little bit because as was stated the uh, these things were told to us for a reason that's the whole point
0: Mm -hmm. as a sort of as a personal testimony i was raised in a very non-religious home Uh, i became a magician first before i became a christian Mm -hmm. and so because of my understanding of the nature of deception and sleight of hand uh, I remember playing with my first homemade Ouija board and tarot cards. I all knew, I knew it was all fake, right? And not real, and so I became very skeptical of all things supernatural. And it was Bible prophecy, specifically the Book of Daniel, that moved me to the realization that this is a divinely inspired book, right? Not just <clears throat> like I had seen so much of. Uh, you know, clever deceptions of human beings. Yeah, and and, uh, you know, people will
1: always ask, well, why do you believe the Bible is the Word of God? You know, as opposed to any other religious book that's out there, and there's all kinds of religious books you can Mm. take a look at. Well, you know, first of all, uh, because of its doctrinal consistency. Uh, Although it was written by uh, over 40 different authors on three different continents and three different languages, Over 1,500 years in time, it agrees down to the crossing the T's and the dotting the I's, the most controversial subjects known to man. That would be reason number one. Secondly, because it's historically accurate. When we take a look at archaeology, we don't find archaeology disproving what we find in the Bible. Rather, we find the Bible confirming, uh, or archaeology confirming, uh, the the record that we find in the Bible. And uh, as we've shared here on this program, more and more discoveries that we're finding in Israel itself are not uh, contradicting the message of the Bible. In fact, Nelson Glueck, the uh, famous uh, secular archaeologist, said that there has never been an archaeological discovery that has contradicted a biblical reference. Rather, they've only uh, uh, succeeded in confirming them. So, you know, again, it's accurate in terms of what we can take a look at in the here and now. But uh, you can have something that's consistent and, uh, you know, again, archaeologically accurate, but it doesn't mean it's the Word of God. But that's where the kicker comes in. Predictive prophecy, because uh, I think it was Josh McDowell uh, who pointed out that Mm -hmm. to have predictive prophecy, uh, 100% correct, 100% of the time, that tells you something. It tells you a number of things about its author. Number one, it tells you that the author is not restricted by time. Mm -hmm. Can see future events before they take place. Mm -hmm. But even more than this, that author has to be sovereign in control of all events to make sure that the predicted event actually does come to pass so when we see what the test uh, of a true prophet is according to the scripture that everything they say has to happen or you don't listen to them at all well the bible throws down that gauntlet and time after time after time specifically proves it
0: and we're not talking nostradamus with such generalities that i could flip a coin and two nations will go
1: to war but only one will win (laughs) oh my gosh what a prophecy
0: we're we're talking uh, a level of specificity that really puts to shame any claims of predicting the future from any uh written work or any so-called medium or spiritualist or psychic or whatever it may be throughout history many have made all kinds of claims and you know uh, colleagues and i wrote a book on the subject and uh it's it's night and day, the day.
1: and the name of the book is well, unmasking the
0: masquerade uh, three illusionists investigate deception fear and the supernatural
1: and how can people get a hold of it?
0: You can just go to faithsearch.org. Okay, it there. okay. Right. very good. Well, our next question is, uh, uh, could the image of the beast in Revelation be AI or a human clone?
2: Yeah, this is another example of those phenomena, as we call newspaper eschatology, when it comes to, I guess, narrowing in on what the nature of these end times figures and their shenanigans are going to be the tendency for a lot of people we saw this with credit cards and them involving you know serial numbers and codes and it's only a matter of time before that's ingrained on you you're supporting the mark of the beast by switching from checks to credit and then all these other fun parallels, you know, who's the Antichrist, is it this person, is it that person, and the tendency for people who genuinely want to see the Lord return, and that's an attitude he encouraged, by the way, end up looking so much not just at world events through the lens of who's the Antichrist rather than how do I grow in fellowship with Jesus Christ today, but taking and confusing rather their I guess gut reactions to weird developments in the fields of science and social dynamics and end up reading the end times into that. And this, of course, can be summarized in plain English. I don't like that. Therefore, it's a sign of the end of the world, because what else could unnerve me about this? It could just be that it's unnerving and you can leave it at that. But when people say, oh, well, what if the image of the beast is an AI, and then they'll go into these vague promises and claims of what AI could be capable of, and then give examples of some things that aren't that impressive that it's doing here today. We've talked about this before, just to be brief, an AI is only as smart as the one who programs it. It's not going to surpass human intelligence. And when you get into the, you know, Terminator theories and Skynet becoming self-aware and machines replicating and improving themselves without our help, once again, we can be certain as certain as Jesus' resurrection, that it won't be allowed to reach that point. Let me just appease some emotions there. We can talk theories all day, we can talk potentials all day, we can talk doomsday until doomsday, but here's the actual place. We hear about the image of the beast, and if it's not a hundred percent parallel, then it needs to be left for its ultimate fulfillment when it actually takes place. This is the passage referencing the beast out of the earth, which is a reference to Daniel 6 by the way. He had two horns like a lamb and he spoke like a dragon. Now the dragon is something that has been referenced in the previous chapter. That serpent of old <laughs> who is the devil and Satan is the dragon It was illustrated in chapter 12 and verse 4. But he notes this. He exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence. Now, what was the authority of the first beast? Who was the first beast? Well, the first beast is a reference to the beast from the sea. Again, Revelation 13 doesn't start at verse 11. There were 10 verses before that. And what does it note in verse 4? It says they worshipped the dragon, see previous chapter, that's Satan, who gave authority to the beast. So, everything that the beast from this earth is exercising is also an extension of the power of Satan. That's why we consider them this unholy triad, if you will. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven on earth in the sight of men, and he deceives those who dwell on the earth. Notice, deceives those, not shows something legitimate, deceives those. The message is false, by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast telling those who dwell on the earth to make notice he doesn't make he he tells the inhabitants of the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived he was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed and then notes that everyone's going to be on this program or they'll face the penalty here's the point when we see the world fall in line with this new program there's people who obviously and appropriately note it will be tied into their ability to financially involve themselves in the world they can't uh buy or sell, the next verses go on to note in verse 17, without having taken an identifying mark that will show not just that you have something on your right hand or forehead, but what? You've worshipped the image of the beast. Now, worship literally means to recognize who someone is, to treat them as they ought to be. False worship is to treat someone as they claim to be, but not as they are. Right. And this will be a recognition that this false prophet, this one performing miracles, will cause what? People to believe, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, that as a result of him standing in the holy place demanding to be worshiped as God and declaring that he is God, the world will recognize this and identify themselves as such. Now, do you say, well, what if this is like a computer program that everyone has to, like, add to their app store or something, and they have to, you know, do like a screenshot or something? Okay, what if maybe, I don't know, we're not there yet, but does it fit all of the data? Once again, no, because in this Antichrist, doing something supernatural, giving life to the image of the beast. I don't think a patch update that will cause a, you know, avatar emoji to tell you, hey, uh, engrave 616 or 666, depending on your translation, into your right hand or forehead so you can give a thumbs up to our new leader being God. That's not supernatural. That's pretty much normal in our day and age as far as the updates are concerned. Also, the idea of uh, your phone speaking to you is to be expected. What people will look at in these images will not be expected. It will require a great deception, God allowing something to take place because they had no love for the truth. See 2 Thessalonians 2 once again. So we again are asking, does it check all the boxes? Well, as far as AI goes, it can check maybe one and a half but not all four. What about a clone? Well, once again, these people are being told to make an image of the beast. It's not like there's going to be, you know, depending on, I guess, how many people are left alive at the halfway point of the tribulation, gets gets four billion uh, clones in every household like some, you know, bad iteration of iRobot where the Antichrist clone is going to be the, you know, creepy older sibling in everyone's household. Once again, that doesn't fit what we're being told here right the fact that clones will be given life will be an assumption because they are by definition living beings just with identical genetic makeup it doesn't fit what we're told i have more reason to fit what we're told into what will be than what i'm scared of today could be if right. that makes sense right and so good. yeah so when it comes to this is unnerving, the idea of AI, you know, manipulating sources of communication, uh, forming, you know, sources of information, people typing in, you know, can you give me uh, facts about Joe Biden? And it's all but glowing and says, but there's some economic issues with the COVID uh, pandemic and the fallout of that shutdown. Then you say, what's Donald Trump like? And then they just list all of these accusations, most of which were verifiably false and the other blown out of proportion. That's why we note and say it's only a smart as the person programming it. Now, could it be a tool of deception? Yes, but two liars doesn't mean there's only ever going to be one liar. Two people can lie. This will be a greater lie because it will involve the nature of God in a way that the whole world will buy if it wasn't for us being warned in advance. See Matthew 24. I can go on, but the point being made is this. Short answer, no.
0: Now, Joseph, thanks for that question, Joseph Paul. He wanted to also know since China has been involved in cloning animals, uh, is it possible that if clu- human clones were to ever exist, assuming they don't yet, <laughs> uh, could a human clone be saved? They're
2: just as living as anything else.
0: Yeah,
1: well, you know, that question came up, believe it or not, when the first test tube baby uh, was conceived, mm-hmm. uh, you know, outside of a, uh, the, the normal uh, womb. Uh, you know, they would take the the sperm and the egg cell, they would join them together in a petri dish or some structure along that line, then implant them inside of a womb and bring it to birth. So, you know, when that came out, people were like, oh my gosh, you know, does that mean that this person doesn't have a soul? Well, yes, that, uh, I mean, obviously that, that being has a soul. Why? Because genetically, no matter how you slice it, we all go back to the first person. God breathed into the nostrils the breath of life into Adam, and he became a living soul. Ever since then, this animation uh, factor that we call life, uh, we, we don't know what it is. We see what it does. Uh, science can describe how it behaves, but it can't say, well, this is the spark of life, or this is the breath of of life, we can't do it because it's just beyond us. We can't even do that with gravity. We can see what gravity does, but nobody can say, well, here, let me show you a picture of gravity. Uh, You know, science definitely has its limitations. And so when someone worries that, uh, you know, say uh, someone was, you know, brought together with a certain genetic endowment, um, doesn't have anything to do with what's going on with them spiritually,
2: Mm. so. Mm.
0: And they are implanted and born like all of us are. I'm curious, though, what you would think. There's a company trying to propose the idea of, I mean, I guess they're working on it, to Custom have artificial babies, yes. artificial wombs, like a whole plant, sure. where people donate their genetic material, and then they they never parent. There's no such thing as parenting. Uh, they aren't clones, they're real people, but they're not grown in a the womb, they're grown in an artificial womb. So if they technically wouldn't be born from a human, so when Jesus said, And this was a stretch, but I'd be curious as to how you would respond to this. If Jesus said, unless a person is born of water and spirit, meaning they're born physically, you have to be alive. And spiritually, you cannot see God.
1: Well, yeah, you answered the question, though. Uh, You know, born of water, what does that mean? They have to be alive physically. Is
0: that what it means or does that mean the the birthing process?
1: Well, at that time, they were inseparable. There was no such thing. (laughs) as uh, test tube technology or artificial wombs or whatever. You know, I mean, uh, there was a song way back when called In the Year 2525 that talked about that that mm. sort of thing. And there's all kinds of sci-fi deals, you know, <laughs> where they talk about, oh, you know, uh, you know we don't actually uh, procreate the way they used to. You know, mm. it's all just done mm. scientifically. But what really uh, comes back to is this. Okay, where did that spark of life come from in the first place? You know, just because you, in a sense, alter... The, uh, the developmental uh, environment that takes place there. If God doesn't give the spark of life, if he doesn't make a yeah, person right. a living soul, um, that no matter how much science you throw at it, uh, that person is not gonna make it.
0: So. My twin boys were cut out of their mom's belly. They weren't born, they were removed. Right, <laughs> so I was. So technically, yeah. uh, my boys weren't born. <laughs> yeah, my, my
1: son and daughter uh, were, uh, were both uh, C-section mm. babies. Oh. And uh, You've heard the
0: second time is always more difficult when you so, have to get a second C-section. Well, no, my actually, first time was a uh, Actually, the first
1: time was, was uh, I mean, 38 hours of labor in oh, an emergency gosh. C-section. We almost lost him and my wife in the midst of all of that. Oh, After that, my wife was just call the doctor and schedule it. <laughs> 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 there, there was a big kind of fad about natural childbirth, and mm. you got to be like the Hebrew women who are more hardy than the Egyptians count if it's not natural. have them out in the field and things like that. But yeah, it's,
2: it's a very bad idea because if anything is true of human nature, we'll find excuses to reduce people to a subhuman class, and that's mm. just begging for manipulation mm-hmm. socially. But the idea that they wouldn't have souls because they— well, even then, to say that I uh, don't fit into Jesus' definition of life, because if Jesus was truly God, He'd speak mm. beyond the immediate audience mm. He was talking to in ways He wouldn't understand, is ridiculous. Yeah, and and
1: let's face it, the Nazis, you know, were experts at designating a certain race of people as soulless. Uh, you know, in the uh, documentary Shoah that uh, Steven Spielberg put together of Holocaust uh, remembrances. One of the most stunning things, uh, testimonies that I heard about was, uh, when the tide turned and the Russians were heading towards the, uh, extermination camps in Poland in particular, at Auschwitz and Dachau. Uh, they, uh, the, the people involved started thinking, oh boy, we got to cover our tracks because if, uh, the tide of the war continues like this, we're all going to be, yeah. uh, hung for what we've done. So, uh, they went back to the mass graves, uh, where they would just, uh, Execute Jews uh, put them in these trenches and execute them and then uh, bury them They went back and had the uh, the inmates in the concentration camp dig up the bodies Well after three years these these bodies were just smashed flat, you know by the, the by being buried and such But it was really interesting. They said that if you referred to that corpse as a corpse or as a body you would be beaten to death by the guards you could only refer to them as rags. Wow. And so you see this idea of uh, these incredibly brilliant people, I mean, paragons of science and philosophy, the German people, coming to a point of saying, that uh, we've decided is not a human being, that is soulless, mm. that's a rag, that's not a corpse, that's not a body. And you can see the kind of oppression and horrible things that flow
0: out of all just that. Just a clump of yeah. cells. Yeah, yeah
2: they're just—they're not humans. They're not babies. They're fetuses. Don't look up what that means in Latin. Well, those are white people. They are responsible for evil. That's and on and on it goes. Yeah,
1: and uh, you know again, um, you know the, the whole idea of redefining uh, people and uh, you know just saying, well, it's not a human being. A fertilized egg is not a human being. Look at this picture versus you. Well, okay uh you know the, the only difference between you and me and that fertilized egg is time and nurture mm-hmm. same uh, difference between me and you right now that's that's the only thing that, that's involved there They say oh but they're not viable well i know some teenagers that aren't viable without their parents <laughs> intervention yeah. Yeah. you know how could you just how could you say well there's a two-year-old they can't survive without their parents uh intervening for them so they're not really a human being you know? I know that
0: my boys wouldn't last very long if I just put them out the front doorstep and said, "Well, good luck, boys." <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, just imagine what the average person would do in our society if electricity suddenly was no more. Oh, How many God. of us would be viable? So.
2: How many that, people are uh, viable when yeah. their phone runs yeah. out of energy? Yeah. yeah.
0: Well, thank you, uh, Joseph, for that question. Uh, Scott Richardson would like to know how can we see God face to face if God doesn't have a face, if God is spirit?
1: Well, uh, it goes back to a uh, passage in Exodus chapter 33 and verse 11, it says, so the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend and he would return to the camp and his servant Joshua the son of none, a young man did not depart from the tabernacle. Now this face to face relationship that God had with Moses further iterated in Numbers chapter 12 and verse eight, God said about Moses, I speak with him face to face, even plainly, and not in dark sayings. And he sees the form of the Lord. So uh, what we see here is this idea of relationship being talked about here. Uh, now, as far as God being spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth, and does his spirit have a face, does a spirit have a body, and so on? Well, um, there's, there's debates about that sort of thing and exactly what that means. But when we talk about the second person of the Trinity, uh, the God, the Son, uh, well, we see that uh, he does have a body and he does have eyes and he does have a face. He took on them in a moment of history
2: and he was the one speaking to Moses here.
1: And, uh, you know, again, the Holy Spirit himself. Uh, When uh, John the Baptist baptized Jesus, the Holy Spirit manifested himself in the form of a dove. So you could see someone who is essentially spirit in that particular form. Uh, You know, there are some people who say we will never see God the Father face to face. Well, we can't see God in all of his glory. Obviously, it would be like, uh, say, a Star Trek transporter device materializing us three feet away from the sun. Who could possibly stand that limited level of glory? But when we are in uh, the eternal state, there's a very interesting statement that uh, the Apostle Paul makes in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know, just as I am also known. So, you know, the question comes up, okay, will we see God in his entirety? Will we see the Father face to face? Will we see the face of God? Well, if God wants to manifest himself in a way where we can see his face and relate to him, he certainly can do that. Uh, we know that Jesus in the book of Revelation continues to be the God-man, and we will see his face. Uh, We see in uh, Revelation chapter 4 that the one who sat on the throne, who, by the way, is distinct from the lamb who takes away the sin of the world, was visible and viewable to a certain extent by the apostle John. So the reason I point this out is, you know, some people have kind of gotten, you know, uh, I think a little... Um, over finicky about this or that well god is spirit so spirits don't have faces so we'll never see the face of god and there's people who are just heartbroken about that i mean i'm never going to see my heavenly father ever you know it's just beyond all of that mm-hmm. um you know I, I just think it's kind of talking out of turn now we see through a glass darkly but then face to face mm-hmm. uh, how are we going to relate to god in a perfect way well that's impossible for me as an imperfect human being To be able to tell you fully But I do know this No one who goes to heaven Is going to be experiencing anything less Mm -hmm. Than fullness of joy Psalm 16 and verse 11 says in your presence is fullness of joy At your right hand pleasures forevermore Uh, Nobody's going to get to heaven and say Gee I wish this was better than this (laughs) Or this is pretty good Mm -hmm. but you know The operation about whether we see the Father or not I just don't like that sort of thing I I think we can trust God with those details
0: And and isn't it kind of Focusing on how we see things here in the natural world, you know, just because something is spirit or incorporeal, does not mean that we not will not see spiritually what God looks like. I mean, we we see things now because we see light reflecting off physical things, but in heaven we will have spiritual bodies and will be able to see spiritual things. See the universe as it really is, and God as he really is. Oh, for sure, there's going to be a massive
2: upgrade, Yeah. yeah. The way Jesus would in his glorified body, physical and perfect spiritually. But the assumption, of course, if you take the route of it being, you know, hyperbolic or uh, representative of the idea that you have a spiritual awareness or not, but the fact that God the Son is the one we interact with, he does have a face. So that doesn't jibe. And if on the other hand you'd say, well, God the Father can never manifest himself physically. Well, he hasn't, and that's more for our sake than his. Could he? That's your point.
1: Yeah, and uh, you know, there's an interesting passage in First John chapter 1, where the apostle uh, John says that which we have seen and heard we declare to you that you may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the father and with his son uh, Jesus Christ the word with there in the original language pros in Greek carries the idea of face to face but so it's not just with Jesus it's with the father himself wow, awesome. so that that relationship that intimacy mm. is taken care of like you say are we going to get better things to see God with in our human eyes I would certainly hope so I hope I'm still not stumbling to put my contact lenses in when I get to heaven. Uh, but uh, but nobody's going to be disappointed at that arrangement. I think we can definitely come to a conclusion on that. Yeah,
0: well, thank you, Scott, for that question. Uh, Frank wants to know, is, God use, is using God's name as a curse word or cuss word the same thing as taking his name in vain? I thought that taking God's name in vain was much more than that.
2: Yeah, um, the good place to go is the views of the rabbis who've been studying this since before our country existed. Um, Dennis Prager gave an insight as a modern rabbi, kind of secular, but nonetheless, uh, to take someone's name in vain is a lot, basically, as far as the culture would use that phrase, comparable to acting or praying in Jesus' name. You're acting as a representative of him, you're reflecting his character properly. To take the Lord's name in vain, and that was speaking to Israel, who'd be representing God to the nations, would be to command them not to do evil and say that God approves, to take the name of the Lord as his representative and then misrepresent him to someone. Obviously, when people get concerned about vulgar language, obviously there's a downside scripturally. Coarse language is not fitting for saints in Ephesians, but if we look at scripture, there are times where God has to use very vulgar terms to get people's attention. Ezekiel uses basically a very vivid illustration of prostitution and descriptions of genitalia compared to donkeys. Malachi 2 and Philippians 3, I believe, both use a very vulgar term for human refuge, and on it goes. But the point being made is to do evil in the name of God. Speaking to people in ways that just aren't (laughs) the way that language was intended to use, or in a cutting, caustic, or scornful way, that is an example of that, but not the only one.
0: Thank you, Sean, and thank you for your questions. If we didn't get to your question, we'll tackle them next week. Uh, We'll be here same place, same time. God bless you, and thank you for tuning in. Have a great weekend.
1: God bless you guys.
0: You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.